Hello and welcome. Welcome to another edition of Atlas Information Live. We're glad that you could join us and be here for a discussion that was prompted, obviously, by the release of Avatar, The Way of Water. This is uh, one of those pop culture events, which happens in the case of Avatar. The last one was 13 years ago. And it's significant an event because there's a tremendous amount of information embedded or encoded in this film. And not because it was intentionally put there, at least not in any sort of not in the same way as other properties that we have discussed in the past. And we want to get into that in more detail today and discussing the difference between Avatar and let's say Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or even Game of Thrones for that matter, or other mythologies or high art of other kinds. But to begin, we should get some housekeeping out of the way, including sharing the link if you wish to uh, participate. And uh, we're also streaming on Twitch today, although because we see no reason why we should continue streaming on Twitter. Um, we seem to have never have anybody watching there. We're probably going to switch from Twitch to Rumble. So we'll have Facebook, YouTube, and Rumble um, at some point moving forward. But there's the uh, the, the YouTube link. And uh, and then, again, there's it's the same link. It's just to, to link into StreamYard if you want to participate in the discussion. Um, if you've had an opportunity to see the film, then that's one thing. If you haven't yet, then we're not going to be discussing, you know, any what they call spoilers. We're not in the uh, the business here of spoiling anything for anybody. If you want to go and enjoy the movie and enjoy the, the, the story, then by all means, you should do so because they're charging enough money so that if you, if you do go and watch the film, you may as well enjoy it in some capacity. You may as well get your money's worth. So we're not here to ruin the film. What we're here to do is penetrate into the appeal of this particular property, of this particular franchise, and indeed, this particular world. 
as you may be aware, there are, what do you call them, exhibits? What's the correct terminology? We don't go to amusement parks and, and theme parks often. So are they called displays? Are they called, what are they called? But there's a, there is a world of Pandora and we believe it's at uh, either Disney World or Disneyland. We don't know which, we've never seen it, we've never been there. But it apparently is quite popular. They recreated with animatronics and models and lighting and visuals and video and all sorts of uh, uh, electronic wizardry. They've they've they created this this pavilion, I guess is maybe how you would describe it of of Pandora. I mean, people can go and 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 spend time on Pandora. And Pandora is, of course, the fictional planet that Avatar takes place on. And the appeal of this film, if there is any, is that they, they go away from the forest this time, and much of the film takes place on or beneath the water. Um, Benjamin says, hello. Hello, Benjamin. Nice to see you here. Glad you could be with us. And uh, Kamal Manzuki, which which that name always trips me up. So I, I should just call you start calling you Kamal because it's always a it's always a visual it's it's always visually uh, uh, difficult to uh, to grab that name. Um, so the way of water takes place as suggested, a lot of it on or beneath the waves. And we should probably give credit where credit is due, although none of you, are, I think, are coming here for a review of the film. We should make it clear that the film is a technological marvel. It is every bit as groundbreaking as the first movie was 13 years ago. The the motion capture and the computer generated imaging, this is what's called CGI, is true to life in almost every conceivable possible way. And it still maintains the aesthetic of Pandora, being that it's also underwater. But the but the uh, the character designs. The art, the art direction, the world design, the world building, everything is all true to the first film and James Cameron's vision, of course. But everything's been dialed up. Everything's been amped up. So, um, and the, the underwater sequences and the flora and the fauna, the corals, the the jellyfish or the equivalent of jellyfish and the whales and all the like it's very much a, a step up and not only from the first avatar film but from just about any film you have seen certainly any blockbuster film from marvel or disney or any other studio the 
technology has been pushed to its absolute limits in this film. And that makes for a very visceral, eye-popping experience. Now, part of the side effects of this is the film is shot in 60 frames per second. And this, unfortunately, gives the all the action and all the, the, the visuals a very artificial kind of feel to them. Because if you're not aware, 24 frames per second is what the typical speed of 35 millimeter film is and why film seems so natural and so lifelike to us because we perceive in 30 frames per second or what they call 24 frames per second plus you know so give or take but it's essentially 30 frames per second is how we perceive reality and that's why film that runs at 30 frames per second seems un imperceptible to us we don't see the individual images for us it flows naturally but for some reason uh james cameron and others who push are trying to push the digital envelope and trying to push the technology of film in that direction seem to want to force 60 frames per second and 60 frames per second feels unnatural it certainly feels unnatural to me. And now I don't get any headaches. I don't get seasick. I don't get any of these problems that some people do when they watch something in 60 frames per second, especially when it's shot in 3D. Um, I don't know if there's some sort of agenda around trying to force the 60 frames per second thing. I don't know it's because if it's because it matches uh, video games, uh, high-end video games and high-end video game consoles and so on, like video gamers seem obsessed with frame rates and constantly pushing the frame rate higher and higher and higher and higher. But to me, the natural side effect of this is that if you shoot, if you shoot a film in a higher frame rate and show it in a higher frame rate, it feels like a video game. It doesn't feel like reality anymore. And I don't know if this is related to the um the different frequencies like the different uh hertz that they use in the recording of audio because again in music there's this clearly someone made a decision to record audio at a different frequency that than what is naturally occurring to us and what's what feels natural and organic the, uh, the, I believe it's 440 hertz, which is the natural organic vibration of sound, and that they, they change that. Now, I'm not an expert in sound engineering. I'm not an expert in video, so I'm really speaking out of, out of line here. I really, I can't speak very intelligently on this subject. I'm really asking the question, but I am aware that choices were made deliberate choices were made in the recording industry and now it seems there seems to be a deliberate push to change the frequency at which 
movies, the 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 hurts, the the uh, at which movies are shown from thirty frames per second to sixty, just like the hertz was changed in music in the um, at the dawning of the digital age, the digital revolution. So um, audio cassettes and before them LPs, right, albums, vinyl were recorded at a certain frequency. And a vinyl had to be recorded at that frequency because vinyl is analog. And so in the natural course of events, that is the natural frequency at which that music was recorded because that's the vibrational frequency of the of the earth 440 hertz but in the digital revolution they saw fit to change that frequency for whatever reason and if you're conspiratorial you'll have many different theories as to why they changed that frequency but the point is they changed it to be something unnatural something that doesn't naturally sync or jive with us uh, in our in our present incarnation and again the 30 frames per second being switched to 60 frames falls into that category okay that's enough of the, that's enough of that we want to get away from the technological stuff and and get more into the esoteric stuff but we wanted to mention this that this film again is pushing boundaries and really uh, makes anything else out there look completely fake by comparison like any of the star uh, star wars movies or disney movies or marvel movies and their cgi and whatever it really doesn't compare to what uh, james cameron and his team at weta were were doing with this film so so we've acknowledged that technological aspect and also the upsides and downsides and it was in 3d but that's neither here nor there it really doesn't make any major difference to be honest with you it's not a movie that they were milking that 3d so they weren't going out of their way to shove the 3d in your face if it was just there but why if you don't know the story actually we should tell you the story in 10 uh, 13 years ago when the first avatar came out it was quite common for people to step out of the theater and turn around and go right back in to see the next viewing of Avatar. This was quite common. And we don't know if that's the case with this film, or but many people are watching it a second and third time. And one of the comments of viewers of the first Avatar film was, uh, they just didn't want to leave. They just didn't want to leave. It's not because they were enamored with the story or the characters or the acting or any of that. It was simply they did not want to leave the world of Pandora. And it's obvious with the sequel that's underwater, uh, that's an aspect of the filmmaker's passion. Uh, James Cameron is uh, a passionate diver, free diver, deep sea diver. He's a deep sea explorer. He's explored the Marianas Trench. 
he actually went down to the Titanic and made he made a documentary about the actual Titanic. Um, as part of his filming of the Titanic. But he is absolutely uh, obsessed, maybe is not the right word, but he's very, very passionate about the oceans. He's, a, he's passionate about ocean preservation. He's passionate about ocean wildlife. And all of that comes through in this film. And so it's clear that this film in particular was very much a passion project for him. And it may be that people like the first film, they just don't want to leave. They won't want to leave the theater. They won't want to leave this world of Pandora, this fictional, ultra, hyper-sensory, visceral expression of nature, this magical, mystical world where these beings, these Navi, these human-like giants have this mutually symbiotic relationship with nature. And they're able to communicate with nature and bind with nature and be one with nature and be and commune with their mother goddess whom they call Ewa. That's Ewa is Pandora's Gaia. And, of course, if you remember the films, even the first one, if you haven't seen the second one, but you'll remember from the first one, the, everything's glowing. Everything is uh, iridescent, right, on Pandora. As soon as the, the darkness falls, right, the eclipse, there's a, there's a daily eclipse on Pandora and everything goes dark, all the animals, all the creatures, all the plants, they all come to life and they all start glowing. And Pandora glows in the dark. It's like... It, you know, it's like someone turned on, turns on a black light. And so the, it has this, this magical, mystical, fantastical, right? And this is what people responded to and did not want to leave. They did, they simply became enamored with this vision of James Cameron, this, this world and of being one with nature and this heightened reality, this hyper-reality. And it might be tempting for us to say, well, pff, of course, well, naturally, who wouldn't, who wouldn't be enamored with that? Who wouldn't want to live like that? And, and of course, it's a, it's a beautiful place and it's a magical, mystical vision. Who, like, like well, that should, that's not strange. That shouldn't be... Um, surprising. But, you know, we here want to go deeper than that. Is it just that the Pandora was just like this, this frivolous popcorn vision that was going to appeal to the masses? Is that just, is that what it's all about? Is that, is that it? Why? Why is Pandora so appealing? Why are the notions and the themes so alluring to individuals who run the gambit, 
the whole spectrum of human experience. It does not matter. Avatar was an international phenomenon. It was the highest grossing movie of all time, 13 years ago. And it touched all four corners of the, of the earth. And whether people were Christian or Muslim or Jewish or, it, it, or Hindu or Buddhist, it didn't matter. Or they were atheist, it didn't matter. Everyone was moved and touched and moved by it to one degree or another. And it wasn't the story, which was basically Dances with Wolves in Space, or Fern Gully, right? Which is, was, was a cartoon. If you take Fern Gully and cross it with Dances with Wolves and put it on Pandora, you have Avatar. So people weren't enamored with the story. They weren't enamored with the acting. They were, but it was this world that captured people's imagination. Why? What is it about? Was it just the pretty colors? Was it just the advanced computer graphics? There is something, and we've not only mentioned this before, we've, we've written articles about this. And We've described how it is that at the end of every civilization, when a civilization is in decline and in collapse, mechanical nature calls to her children. And mechanical nature calls to humanity like the sirens call to Ulysses in Homer's epic, like the three witches call to Macbeth. It's a seduction. It's a temptation. It's, it's, it's an allure, which for many is absolutely irresistible. And that allure in no uncertain terms, represents uh, it represents a romanticization. It's it is taking advantage of the base sentimentality of human beings. Well, specifically of intellectual animals who mistakenly call themselves human beings. And it is an allure which appeals to our base nature. But Avatar takes this another step. You know that there are, uh, there is a powerful pull, for example, in the modern uh, society for people to go off grid and return to nature and 
do permaculture and and you know basically turn their back on civilization altogether and part of that allure part of that returning to nature bundled up with that comes a romanticization of native spirituality and bundled up with that comes the use of psychedelics and other substances um, vision quests dream quests um, ancestor worship the of course the beating of the drum the very primal heartbeat of mother earth of mother gaia the beating of the drum and you notice that nowadays so-called modern music is very 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 bass heavy it is undeniable it's been bass heavy now for 25 years maybe more and dancing has all but vanished real dancing between a man and a woman on a dance floor that has been replaced with groups of people jumping up and down in the dark to the beat that is what you will find when you go anywhere in the world into indigenous cultures that's how they dance they jump up and down to the beat of the drum then you you look at the uh the the proliferation of piercings the prolif the proliferation of tattoos tattoos piercing and scarring are all indicative of indigenous very primal very earthy earth oriented cultures and then you get into the spirituality which is basically nature idolatry nature worship and gaia grandmother gaia or mother earth or grandmother earth or the great mother or there's so many different ways in which she's expressed that is solely solely wholly and completely understood and oriented to the physical earth and mechanical nature and all of that we should all be aware of this because it is undeniable and how all indigenous people everywhere you go on this planet every single indigenous culture bar none bar none every single one is descendant from a high civilization not hundreds of years ago in the case of uh, the north american indians and the remnants the mayans the guatemalans for example and the remnants of the mayans and the aztec civilizations it's, it's only well about it's only a few hundred years ago half a millennia ago give or take but there are indigenous people who are descended from high civilizations thousands of years ago and some of them tens of thousands of years ago because they're descendant of former high civilizations former humanities but they their nature is even more primal more animal that they're devolving humans they're, they're they have devolved from high civilization and these were these represent those human beings which gave themselves back to nature they gave themselves back to mechanical nature they identified with their animal selves they identified with this flesh and blood and and the, the personality and they identified 
the Divine Mother with Divine Mother Nature, and rightly so, at this level. But that's just one level. That's just one level. That's not the totality of, of creation. And that's not the totality of spirituality. And that's certainly not the totality of the Divine Mother. The Divine Mother represents the body of the entire universe and all manifest reality. We've talked about this before. We talked about uh, prana and the akash. Space itself is the body of the Divine Mother. And space far extends past this mere planet, number one. And number two, space encompasses far more than the narrow band of electromagnetic energy that we can that we can perceive. Uh, Moon says, Grand Rising Soul Tribe, uh, happy Sunday to you all. And he also uh, follows that up with, we have to distinguish between music coming from light and music controlled by darkness. Many false Hollywood idols sucking on the collective energy. Well, we have to differentiate between that, but we could, but we have to also recognize what darkness is. And that there are many musicians, let's face it, right? There are many musicians that are creating what their music from their heart. And it's coming out as, you know, rap or house or, well, they don't use the term house anymore, do they? It's, uh, but it's that heavy bass, heavy, uh, so-called contemporary music. And they're creating with their blood, sweat, and tears. It just so happens that that music mimics and mirrors the beating of the drum and the jumping up and down and the writhing and the dancing of indigenous cultures around the world. Are we going to, are we going to call those indigenous cultures around the world as, as, as being of darkness and sucking on the collective energy? It is worthwhile meditating on. Because all of those peoples, just like the native North American Indians, to this day, to this day, they are living in the past. And all of those uh, so-called um, victim groups who blame colonialism and blame the white man or the Westerners, the Europeans, for having stolen their land from them and stolen this and taken that and done all sorts of atrocities. And it's true, many atrocities were done. But not only by the white man. That's never mentioned. And you have an indigenous peoples all over the world who are fighting for the right to preserve their so-called way of life. And they do not realize that they are on a devolutionary arc. They believe wholeheartedly that theirs is the spiritual way, that theirs is the right way, that theirs is the only way to live in harmony and in balance with nature. But this is not true. And what's more is they're caught in a trap 
this reality, this 3D physical existence, these bodies we have, these personalities that we have and we identify with, these thoughts, these emotions, this is all a trap. It's it's an elaborate virtual reality to begin with. And it is designed to be a trap. Why? Because it requires awakening and it requires self-realization to realize it's a trap and to evolve to know oneself as the player in this virtual reality simulation, not the character. You see, the character becomes enamored with everything around them because it's the only thing that the character knows. It's the only thing that the character is capable of knowing because the character came from it. The character belongs to it. In the same way that if you play a video game, the character that you play I'll use the example of Mario because that's probably the most recognized video game character on the planet. In whatever version of Super Mario World you're playing, Mario belongs to the game world. He he fits into the game world. His behavior matches what the game world requires. He is designed to exist to be in and of the game in which he exists. Mario knows absolutely nothing about our world. Mario doesn't belong in our world. Mario has no knowledge of our world. Mario, for the most part, isn't even aware that the player exists. Mario is a character in a game, and all he knows is that he has to jump up up and down on these, what are they called, Koopas, the, the, the mushrooms, and he has to defeat Bowser, and he has to save Princess Peach. That's all he knows. Oh, and collect gold coins for whatever reason. That's what Mario knows. That's his existence. But of course, he belongs there. He feels he belongs there. And so he's enamored with his world. And rightly so. What else could he possibly know? He can't leave the he can't leave the game cartridge. Mario cannot leave the game cartridge. That's important to know. Now, if we expand out that analogy and apply it to our world, recognizing that just like in the video game, everything in the video game exists as energy. It's just energy. It's just electricity. Creating this virtual world, right? It's ones and zeros, on and off switches that are magnetically, uh, electromagnetically contained on a gaming cartridge and being processed by silicon chips and being shown on a, on, a, on a display screen. But it's all electricity. It's all just energy. 
Now, that video game console we plug into the wall, right? So the energy comes from elsewhere. But in the world of a planet that gives birth to a character, the energy, the nu nutrients, the nutrition comes from that earth, right? Now, of course, the earth gets its energy from the sun, just like we plug in the video game machine into the wall. The energy comes from someplace else. All of the energy of the earth is all solar energy. It's all solar energy, all of it. But that energy is transformed into different forms of energy and into different forms of potential energy. Energy, energy is stored. Energy is stored as calories. It's stored as fat. It's stored in as heat. It's stored, it's stored as uh, gravitational force compressed at the center of the earth. It's stored as geothermal energy. But it's all solar energy. It's also stored as carbon. But the planet is entitled to that solar energy. And once it's part of its body, it's part of its body. And if it gives birth to something, then that something must return to its source, which is the earth. So your body will return to the earth because it's on loan to you. Your body is part of your character. It's part of your avatar. And here's where we start to get to the rub of these movies. The very fact that even the first film toys with this, plays with this notion of having consciousness implanted into, into a, a, a physical being that they call avatars. This is, this is our first clue, and it's a big clue. It's a major clue. Why? Because the only individuals that are called avatars in, in popular understanding around the world are enlightened individuals. Individuals who reincarnated to come here and perform some sacred mission. And they know that, that this physical body is just an avatar. And they know themselves and they speak of themselves as living gods or as represent, representatives of the living God, right? As being the son of man, the son of God. But when they are referring to themselves in that way, they're referring to their innermost player, not the avatar, not the physical body, not the personality, not the eyes and the hair and everything else that people believe that's just the vehicle. That's just exactly as the original Avatar movie depicted these avatars as being 
just a vehicle so that these human explorers could move and behave and interact with the natives on equal footing. That's the first indication. The second film, The Way of Water, encompasses what Moon mentions here. We come from Earth and we go back to, uh, to Earth. And he says, we are all the children of God, not only the prophet Jesus. Now, okay, let's, let's back up for just one second. Because here you see the, the duality or the, the, the possible um, conflict. Which we have shown right many times. And um, we're going to uh, show it again here. All right, there, it's here on the, on the right-hand side, okay? Our souls, our divine nature, our monad comes from God and returns to God. But that God, the absolute, is at the top of the tree of life. Our bodies, right, our vehicle, our vessel, our avatar comes from the earth and returns to the earth. We have two fundamental, we have two fundamental natures. And the difference between those natures is a question of condensation. And what's interesting is that we also, when we were creating this visualization to explain the relationship between the two natures and evolution and devolution, we used the water cycle to explain that. If you think of your divine nature as water vapor, the sun, the sunlight causes the water to evaporate and go and form the clouds like the heavens and exist in the heavens closest to the sun. But then condensation leads to precipitation and that causes us to fall and we fall as liquid water. We become earthbound as liquid water. And as liquid water, we get caught by undercurrents, undertoes. And we can also be frozen. But this is the way of water, is it not? 
So we have physical water and then we have ethereal water or evaporated water, right? Gaseous water. But it's more, it's more subtle water vapor is. And liquid water and frozen water are obviously more dense. The further away from the sun you go, the darker that water becomes. Now you go into the bottom of the Marianas Trench, it's blackness. It's complete and total darkness. Except for the iridescent creatures down there that are actually able to create light. And some of them lure their prey with, with, by creating glowing light. And where these two meet, where physical water, surface water, and evaporated water in the atmosphere, where they meet, we call that surface tension. Those are actual molecules of water, liquid water, that are trying to answer the call of the sunlight and break free from the liquid water. But as they group up there, as they group up, um, they, they form this, this thin film that insects can actually walk across. And that's called surface tension. That is represented by our reality, our physical reality. Our soul, our monad, is like that water. It wants to break free of this physical reality. It wants to enter into the heavens. It wants to fulfill its birthright. Just like water wants to rise up into the clouds. And that's why all the religions use this analogy of heaven being these clouds and so on, because it's up there, it's up in the heavens. But the undercurrents and the other water molecules, they're designed to keep water on the ground, earthbound. And that's the same forces that are having an effect on our monad, forces that work for mechanical nature, the forces of the infernal worlds that are trying to keep our monad, our soul, our spirit bound, earthbound, bound within our earth. This is our earth, our avatar, our physical vessel, the character. And it wants to keep us bound within this character, not just physically, but psychologically. Because if we are not aware of our true nature and our birthright to be water vapor in the atmosphere, If we can be convinced that our nature and birthright is to belong here on earth, to be earthbound, then we will show no resistance, that we will not try to get away. That is the nature of the trap.
So psychologically, we become enamored, we become fascinated, we become hypnotized by aesthetics, right? Beautiful flowers, beautiful birds, beautiful this, beautiful that, beautiful corals, beautiful fish, or extraordinary natural wonders, the majesty of mountains, the majesty of giant sequoia, the majesty of incredible rivers and oceans and coastlines and and we can become completely enamored with all of that. Is it wrong to recognize God in all of that creation? No, of course not. But that's the point. We want to recognize the Creator in His creation, not become enamored with the creation but to recognize the infinite genius, the infinite imagination and creativity and wonder and majesty that created that expression, those infinite expressions of beauty and those infinite expressions of, of joy and, and, and wonder. But this is really subtle, and it's very easy to slip, slip into looking at the mountains and seeing and feeling God in the mountains to the majesty of mountains, the majestic mountains themselves. Oh, they're so majestic. And I love mountains. And everywhere I go, I can't get enough of mountains and I have to climb mountains. I have to conquer mountains. Or I have to collect um, uh, deer antlers or moose antlers, right? Moose heads, deer heads. I have to go and hunt moose and hunt deer. Why? Because somehow the majesty and the glory of God shifts into the, into the thing itself. And we become idolaters. We begin to idolize and adore the form, the expression of God, the form that God takes at this level. It, it's like, imagine in the art world, if people became enamored with the Mona Lisa and forgot about Leonardo da Vinci. Imagine if in the art world, people, or in the music world, people became completely fixated on the music and then forgot Mozart or Beethoven or Liszt or Bach or the great composers. Imagine if the composers never got any credit whatsoever. They were forgotten. They were lost and forgotten. 
And the only thing that was held aloft as having any meaning and any value were, were, was the music itself. The, the, seventh, the fifth symphony, the seventh symphony, the ninth symphony. Ninth symphony of who? Oh, who cares? Now, you might say, well, that's ridiculous. But yet, that's exactly what happens when we forget ourselves, when we forget our Divine Mother. Or we, or we shift our spirituality to a place of idolatry. To this realm, to this lower, to the lower realms, and that includes the fourth and fifth dimension, which, as you know, is a favorite hobby horse of the New Age as well. Right? They talk about five D ascension. They don't realize that five D is where we go when we dream. Five D is not ascending anywhere. All the indigenous peoples, all they all have their vision quests and their dream quests and all of that. That's all happening in 5D, but it's lunar. They don't know that. They don't know that. Because it's all part of the trap. It's all designed that way to keep us trapped. At this level. Because to advance, to evolve, to break free to the next level must be an accomplishment. It takes effort. It takes sacrifice. It requires cultivating all of those qualities which are required of beings in the supernal worlds, in the higher dimensions. It's what's required of us if we want to exist on those levels of reality. On this level of reality, we can exist just fine, thank you very much, being completely selfish and being completely self-centered. And many people do. And look around the world. Look at the world that we live in today. The world and humanity in the world get, gets by in a dog-eat-dog, you know, winner-takes-all, competition-based, Darwinian evolutionary mindset. We designed our economics and all of capitalism is designed, is based on competition, so-called market forces. And the inverse of capitalism, communism and socialism, are designed on, on another uh, aspect of mechanical nature, right? The hive mentality, the hive mind, right? Where you have one or two very powerful people at the top, and then everybody else is a drone. Everybody else is just a worker bee or an ant, <clears throat> a drone ant. And then you have a queen. 
And someone looked at that and said, yeah, that's a good way to organize human beings. So this is already a thing, this mechanical nature and being trapped in 3D reality and being enamored with 3D reality and believing that this is all there is. Do you know how many people, so-called intellectuals and scientists, look out into the universe and they believe that this physical reality is all there is? Atheists and whatnot and, ag and agnostics. And they are so, so focused on preservation, self-preservation, that base survival instinct of the, of the false self, of the character, because they believe that they'll be gone once they die, that this is it. They get one kick at the can and that's it. But again, Avatar comes along and injects that and takes it to a whole new level. Moon Azabi says, do not forget that the English language and the Bible have been hijacked by dark entities uh, making us be... Uh, no, we... Don't forget that. And um, as Azil says, it requires elimination to even have the heart to claim oneself to be a child of God. It, it requires it requires recognition and non-identification. Right? To be in it, but not of it. No one is saying that we have to... Uh, even the Buddha you know, pointed this out. Because he tried for many years. Siddhartha tried for many years to be an ascetic. And to deny his physical needs. And you know, he, he lived as an emaciated yogi in the mountains. He, he lived with the ascetics denying his physicality, denying his animal nature, you know, not eating, not drinking, not uh, sleeping, not defecating, not doing the things that, that are required for our animal self. That, that the character requires, that our avatar requires, the vehicle requires, our physical vehicle. But then he had a moment of clarity and he realized that there is a way to be in it, but not of it. I can be in my physical vehicle. I can take care of my physical vehicle. I can allow my physical vehicle to perform the basic functions it requires without identifying with that physical vehicle and without becoming hypnotized by it and without, and without becoming ignorant and losing myself in the physical vehicle 
and the matters of import to the physical vehicle. So I can be in it, but not of it. I can maintain that healthy separation, that distance. And this is what he called the middle way. And uh, Jesus said something to the effect that which, wow, well, was it go that which belongs to the earth, let it return to the earth, and that which belongs to God, let it return to God. Something to that effect. Can't remember the exact quote. But that's the middle way. Buddha recognized. I need this physical vessel to be here and now in physical space, and that physical vessel has requirements. I shouldn't deny the physical vessel what it needs, but I, the occupant of the physical vessel, I also have needs. I mustn't deny myself its needs. And those needs are of a metaphysical nature. And where the, phys where the metaphysical needs and the physical needs connect, there's this tension between them. And that surface tension, that's the physical world. That's, that's this body. That's this personality. That's this mind. And these emotions. We are the field of surface tension between the needs of our metaphysical self, our true self, and the physical needs of our vessel, our vehicle, our avatar. And we will often find these two things are, there's a, there's a push-pull uh, between them. And sometimes we might, sometimes it's beneficial and we might, we might find it useful, for example, to fast, for example. And we deny our physical body what it needs. And we might discover that that physical body is trying to influence us and cause us to give in to its desires because i'm hungry i'm hungry i'm hungry give me some food give me some food give me some food and that act of denying ourselves strengthens us spiritually strengthens our willpower clarifies our mind allows us to meditate and reach deeper levels because we are fasting we are denying that physical body to focus on and emphasize what our metaphysical bodies require. But we can't do that indefinitely unless we become a breatharian and we live off sunlight and, and, uh, and prana in the atmosphere. And if you choose to do that, then that's that option is available to you. 
But what the breatharians don't understand is, is the same thing what so many yogis don't understand, is that gaining uh, mastery over the physical character uh, doesn't... You're, st you're still focused on the physical body. You're still focused on your avatar. You're gaming the system, right? You're hacking the system, and you're allowing your physical body to exist without food, or like the the uh, what's his name, the uh, the Ice Man, who can who can take his body into extreme cold temperatures and so on. Yeah, he's gain, gaming the system, and he's achieving incredible feats over his physical body, incredible control over his breathing and his heart rate etc 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 like like so many yogis in uh, india are able to do but they're not enlightened masters yeah wim hof thanks benjamin but they're not enlightened masters and why aren't they enlightened masters because of what azazel says right here We have to have the recognition, but also an elimination of that which keeps us trapped and hypnotized. You see, individuals like Wim Hof believe that his ability to have control over the physical vessel is, is a sign of his spiritual superiority, his spiritual strength, strength of willpower, et cetera, consciousness, you know, whatever. But you can observe in him and many others who are able to perform these kinds of feats, a tremendous mystic pride, which is born of having these powers, of having developed these powers over the physical body. Mystic pride is a terrible uh, entity which affects all of us when we are on the spiritual path. And it exists in our false self. Because when you talk to yogis who have mastered their body, when you talk to Wim Hof, when you talk to these people, and you listen to them speak, none of them speak about their innermost. None of them speak about their true self. They don't know themselves. All of that that they're doing, they believe that they are doing it. They are taking credit for it. They believe that they, the personality, are the, are the spiritual ones, are the ones who, can, who will ascend because of, look, of this mastery that I have over my physical body. But they don't, they don't understand that that I and that my physical body and that the physical body they're so identified with, they're so focused on mastering, that I itself is part of that physical body. It's part of mechanical nature. It's their ego. Mystic pride exists in the ego. It's the ego taking credit for the work that belongs to the being. 
So what it is that what, what you know, so recognizing that is one thing, but they won't even recognize that. They won't even acknowledge that. Why? Because it runs counter to their narrative, their psychological song that they built up around themselves. That I'm so this, I'm so that, I'm so powerful, I'm so, you know, spiritual, I'm so whatever. Look what I can do. Nobody else in the world can do it. But I'm going to teach other people how to do it. Why? Because I think I'm helping them. Well, you're helping them. You're helping them achieve greater control and mastery over their physical character. But remember this visualization. Remember this visualization. That's still down here. What are you doing for your divine nature? What are you doing for your monad? Couple comments, and we're going to turn the, uh, the the discussion back to Avatar because after all, that was the topic. Uh, oh, Marisol, we're going to butcher your name here. Marisol Chachi and 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 Ciso, and Ciso and Kiso. She says hola, and she says. Uh, we can't say that's obviously <laughs> Linda Pelukia de Avatar or whatever. Um, sorry about that. Um, and Moon Azi says, absolument, oui, yes. Uh, Benjamin says, yes, the death of the self, the false self is required to recognize that God's holy name is I am that I am. It is what it is. We are what we are being. Maybe that is why Jesus, the Christ within, died on the cross with five wounds representing the destruction of the five senses, or ego identification, to be or not to be. Well, not only the five senses, but the five elements. And that actually dovetails or sorry, segues quite nicely as we return to the discussion of Avatar. Because we ask the question, why is Avatar so... Why is the world of Pandora so alluring to people? And the vision that it offers and what we described at the beginning, you know, the, and the glowing world and, and these blue people who are able to commune with nature and ride these animals and have these beasts be an extension of themselves right they they form this bond right the link the bond um and then they can bond with their mother tree and they can bond and unite with awa and they they become one with all things and they can be shown visions and all this kind of stuff pandora is a visual and thematic representation of eden the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is the fourth dimension, jinn state. And 
avatars or avatars avatars or the navi the navi are blue blue is the highest wavelength of light before ultraviolet blue are the colors of the tunics that gnostics wear blue is the golden blue light the golden blue rays of energy that we visualize shooting from our heart healing the earth blue is a sacred color it's royal blue now there are groups centered around saint germain and the the uh, certain masters that use they prefer to use uh, violet as their color since violet is the highest wavelength of color but blue reminds us that there's always another level above us blue keeps us humble even as we aspire to achieving higher vibrations higher more subtle energies blue is that royal blue the color of our innermost father and mother our innermost king and queen the royal blue the color of our being we glow blue but not not ultraviolet not violet because we always want to be humble we always want to recognize that there's always another level above us always until color itself disappears and even there there are levels and levels so the navi are blue and they're able to commune with nature have conversations with animals and bond with them in ways now avatar shows us this bond happening on a physical level but it's interesting it's interesting how james cameron associated that bond with the navi's hair and you may be aware of the uh the folklore about the native american trackers who were taken to vietnam they were recruited uh, drafted and recruited and they were taken to vietnam because they had this incredible tracking ability and they thought that they could be utilized obviously for locating the enemy tracking the enemy but the first thing they did was they cut off all their hair right they gave them all brush cuts and as the legend goes once that happened the trackers lost their ability to track and uh there's much been said about the hair being an extension of the nervous system and that it increases our connection to the earth and our ability to read and receive information from the earth and there's much much has been said and written about that there of course have been stories debunking this uh, legend however it must be stated that the Essenes never cut their hair and never shaved their beards and this was this was the group that Jesus was a member of 
And to this day, there are uh, Orthodox Catholics, Catholic monks, priests um, in the Greek Orthodoxy who still maintain that tradition. And there are many different spiritual sects around the world that that they insist on long hair and 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 beards be maintained. Even Gurdjieff writes extensively about this. So James Cameron clearly was aware of this and he put the Navi's ability to connect with nature as part of their hair. These the the the, the feathery what would you call them? Tentacles or pseudopods or whatever are, are wrapped up in their ponytails, and that's what they use to 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 connect with other living things. And there is so that clearly there's there is a a relationship there on that sensory level, and that extrasensory level because that is a fourth dimensional sensory level that connection with long hair and beards to the earth is pranic it's a connection of sexual energy it's a connection of electromagnetism and how that energy flows up from the earth through us and back down into the earth and long hair helps direct that energy back down to the earth. So we become part of that circuit. And as we are part of that circuit, it's just, it's the same thing, like having a, 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 a wired connection to your computer, right? You're plugged in, right? The stronger that circuit is, the more you are a part of that circuit board. And that energy flows through you. And the more you are part of that circuit board, the more you are privy to what's happening in your environment because you, the environment becomes an extension of you because your electromagnetic field is more directly connected to the broader ecosystem and the electromagnetic fields of the entities around you. So this all relates to things like the morphogenetic field that science is aware of, or at least they've, they haven't been able to quantify it by any stretch of the imagination, but they've been able to witness its effects. There are, so, so that aspect, James Cameron put into Avatar. But that's fourth dimensional. True human beings who are awake are fourth dimensional beings. We are able to commune with nature because we're able to see the elementals of nature. The monads of nature, because the monads of nature are not trapped within their physical bodies as we are. Because the monads of nature are innocent. They're like children. Some of them are mischievous. Right? They have that nature. 
but they're they're like children and they play and they and if you if you put yourself in the jinn state you can go and you can observe the elementals of nature the sylphs and the sylphids of the air the the the, the mermaids of the waters and uh the the gnomes right the pygmies the homunculi of the mineral kingdom and the various different monads of the different animal kingdoms and subkingdoms like birds etc cetera, etc cetera. You can experience this for yourself. And the experience of that and being able to see the auras, the energies of all of these creatures and their physical bodies, this is what in Avatar is depicted as the glowing forest and the glowing animal the glowing undersea life everything glows right on pandora everything's iridescent and all the navi are blue so you have now this conflation It's, you're showing these indigenous tribes people in a physical world and you are taking elements of the fourth dimension and bringing them down and fusing them with the three-dimensional reality of this world, of this Pandora. It's, it's taking the beauty and the wonder that would otherwise require a great deal of effort to be able to achieve and bringing it down into the level of you're already there you could already be experiencing this this is a conflation which makes pandora that much more irresistible to audiences because it's taking elements of the supernal worlds and it's taking elements <clears throat> of what humanity knew and how humanity experienced reality and it's taking it's cherry picking from that reality and bringing those those seeds those cherries and planting them down into a into an imagined physical existence in the same way that indigenous cultures around the world do so with their vision quests and their dream quests and their ancestor uh, worship and their nature idolatry right they want to they're all looking to commune with the elemental spirits of nature they believe that that's the spiritual world that's all that is is the foundation of 3d reality it's the fourth dimension it's the spirit world 
but it's monads in kindergarten. It's just, and the fifth dimension is just the emotions in the mind. That's what that is. And if you haven't eliminated your ego, then you're in the lunar fifth dimension. You're in the lunar astral plane, which is in the infernal worlds. It's down here. Not up here, but down here. But it's enticing. It's alluring, this vision of Pandora. And, of course, thematically and story-wise, they set up who the real bad guys are, right? Who the real enemy is. And the enemy is the white man. The enemy is humans, so-called humans. They call them humans, but, you know, the, the technological and their technological monstrosities and the exploitation of nature and all that stuff. And yeah, that's, that's all true. How can anybody argue against that? And in Avatar, the way of water, they bring in whaling, right? They, they, they add whaling into the mix. And you have this dichotomy being set up where you have this commercial, economic, capitalist, technocratic monstrosity that is coming to rape and destroy and exploit nature. And then on the other hand, you have this magical, mystical, alluring romanticized view of that nature and these two polar opposites are pitted against each other in this rival conflict and that's where the drama ensues and that's where the action ensues and and all the rest of it and we've shown you this visualization before but it's time to show it again this is exactly exactly what happens during the decline and fall of every single civilization and every single humanity. And we'll walk you through it. We are in the Kali Yuga of this humanity. So if you're mechanical nature, right, you've lent the material for an entire humanity to exist. And now that humanity is old and it's withering and it's falling apart. It's reached, it's, it's way past its prime. And now it's in decline, in serious decline. It's time for it to die. How do you do it? How do you undermine the foundations of that humanity? Well, you do it the same way you do everything. You divide and conquer that humanity. You give it two visions of the future. The first vision, and they're, and they're twisted visions. 
because you're mechanical nature and that's all you can do. You're mechanical nature now. All you can do is a twisted, shadowy, physical, crude, corporeal expression or representation of divinity. But you're stuck with what you're stuck with. And the tools at your disposal, like egos, who work for you, they are what get animals to behave certain ways so they survive. Now your survival is, is at stake, so now you have to employ those egos to bring down the downfall of this overblown, overpopulated, carcinogenic humanity. It's, they've had their day. It's, 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 it's done. Now it's time for them to go. So, you implant one vision in their head, which is this technocratic utopia. It's all based on technology and transhumanism, and you bring, you bring in this COVID stuff, and it's fear-based, and pharmaceuticals and everything else, and you're you're gonna and actually you're and you're gonna take uh, 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 any and all substances you can get your hands on and feed it to them to get them completely hypnotized and ignorant to turn them into complete mechanical drones who are totally ignorant of their higher selves. And with this, you're undermining the foundations of civilization. Because anything that's mechanical and corporeal is temporary. And anything that's divine and eternal is eternal. So if you can get them to forget all of that aspect of themselves and get them solely focused on materialism and materialist science and technology, then you are, you are building a future that's built on sand and it will collapse it will collapse in on its own weight and many will know that and they will feel that intuitively and they will feel that in their bones that that's wrong this this transhumanist technocratic you know they, they will feel that so for them you create Twisted Vision B over here on the right. And you offer them a view of nature as eternal, as the ongoing cycles of nature, ongoing death and rebirth, and, and, and you offer up your psychedelics and your other substances, the God's plant, we've heard it called many times, and you give them visions and you 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 know and then you create this romanticized view of nature and you get these people which is a subset of the population a small uh, like less than 20% maybe even as small as 10% of the population to return to nature and give themselves back to you and start worshiping you mechanical nature you become their god The second step in this process here on the left is 
the metaphysical destruction of humanity. So you have individuality, history, tradition, religion, culture, consciousness. All of that's lost to this techno hive mind and this metaverse crap and all this other nonsense and entertainment and all that stuff, which we can see if we look back in history, right? The, the fall of the Roman Empire happened simultaneously with the rise of entertainment, the rise of the bread and circuses and the gladiatorial arenas and the rise of the emancipation of women and homosexuality and where everything's just became sensory and hedonistic. It was all become, it was all about sensory pleasures, hedonist, hedonism. It's the same thing with the Greeks before the Romans. It's the same thing. And you look at the world nowadays, it's the same thing repeated over and over, but we have much more technology to be able to allow, for example, the proliferation of pornography on a scale that was never before possible. Like that's important to keep in mind that video technology on the internet was pioneered by the porn industry. We wouldn't have YouTube today if it wasn't for the fact that the porn industry were doing video years before YouTube came along. So what's been really behind and really pushing this proliferation of the information age and the so-called information that they're pushing and now what we live with today, right? Censorship and fact-checking and everything else. It's a disinformation age that we live in. Not an information age, but a disinformation age. But no worries. Mechanical nature gives you an alternative to all of that. You can say no all of that. You can turn your back on vaccines, on technology, on the internet, on commercialism, on materialism. You can turn your back on all of that and come back into the warm embrace of Mother Nature, where what awaits you is the metaphysical degeneration of humanity. Where the true self is lost in the shuffle, replaced with the false self, also with pleasure, with the tribe and tribal relations, family relations, ancestral relations, bloodlines, drugs, and lunar bodies. So when we get to step three, the physical destruction of humanity, we're left with two results. One, you have a massive depopulation. All those who are part of the techno hive mind, all those who stayed in the cities and didn't want to give up their technology and didn't want to give up their all their hedonism and everything else and their atheism and their secularism and everything else, all of that's all wiped out. It's very easily done with earthquakes and other natural disasters. And the buildings and everything else, I mean, let's face it, it all comes crumbling, crashing to the ground and be completely wiped out and reclaimed by nature within a few generations, within a few hundred years. And the truth of this, by the way, the proof of this is that if you go to Guatemala today, and if you go and visit Tikal, which was the capital of the Mayan civilization, and you go to Tikal and you think you're you're in the you're looking at the capital, you're looking at one 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 thousandth of a percent. Of the capital city. Tikal 
was completely and totally paved over. There wasn't a tree in sight for literally hundreds of kilometers in all directions. It was all stone buildings and pyramids and one one thousandth of Tikal has been excavated. That was only what, 500 years ago? Every single mound, every single hill that is completely covered in rainforest, if you dig just a few feet into that dirt, into that mound, you will hit stone. Because there's a stone building under, underneath, or a stone walkway, or a stone aqua, aqueduct. So when people, when people like to bitch and complain about Graham Hancock and say how there's no evidence of these long-lost civilizations, because they're complete idiots. They're not even aware of the long-lost civilization of 500 years ago. Why would it be a problem for nature to reclaim a lost civilization from 15,000 years ago? We don't even know, we don't even know half or a third or a tenth of the lost civilizations from our own timeline, let alone previous humanities, and the cataclysms that befall humanities far outweigh anything that befell Rome or anything that befell uh, uh, the Mayans. The, the Mayan capital city was reclaimed by the jungle. It was a slow process, but not so slow. Because it's only been 500 years and you, you cannot, you cannot tell. You, I went to Tikal. I was in Tikal. I'm telling you, you're looking at a pyramid on your left and everything around you is jungle. And your guide is telling you, no, that's, that's, that wasn't there. When that, when that, at the time of the Mayans, when that pyramid, when they built that pyramid, you couldn't see a tree on the horizon. He said it was completely paved over. They cut down the jungle and it was this huge metropolis. It was this huge city. And he says everything that you see, and it's unbelievable. You, like you, you look at these hills and stuff, it's unbelievable. You, say, you can't imagine. So you say, yeah, see that hill over there? That's a pyramid. That hill over there? That's a pyramid. That hill over there? That's a pyramid. But all you see is a hill with trees on it. But your guide knows. And he says, come on, come, I'll show you. And he took us down and he showed us where there are these holes dug into the side of the hill. And there's an ex excavation going on. And there's, there's, you can go into the hole, you can go in, and there's a stone building on the inside. It wasn't making it up. But that's the fate of every civilization. One way or another, that's its fate. Just like, just like nowadays, I mean, if you go, you can see remnants of the Roman Empire everywhere you go throughout Europe. But there's many, many, many places in Europe where the remnants of the Roman Empire are completely buried. They haven't been excavated. They're, like, there's lots of ruins that are still, you can see them because they were preserved in one form or another. But there's lots of places where you can't see anything. And then a lot of what you do see are things like roads because the Romans built roads like 
to survive anything, right? So there are basically 1,000, 2,000-year-old roads in Europe. <clears throat> but if they weren't being used, if the population is not there to use them, you think those roads are going to remain exposed? No. No. Any of you ever tried to keep the weeds and the grass out of your sidewalk? From coming up and growing up through the cracks in your sidewalk? You know what I'm talking about. A couple hundred years, you won't be able to see any of the Roman roads anymore. If there's no humans using those roads, those roads will vanish in a few generations. Nature will come and swallow them up and they will disappear. And unless you're looking with a shovel and you're excavating, and by the way, when you do start excavating those roads or that, that uh, ground, some future humanity starts excavating and starts digging up, they're going to see a bunch of boulders and rocks and everything being dug up and say, oh, wow, it's interesting collection of, uh, of boulders underneath here. In interesting collection of rocks. There's, not, there's nobody necessarily going to identify that as a road. So that's the depopulation part. That's the first part. That's half the equation here. You depopulate. And all the civilization crumbles, it vanishes, it gets reabsorbed, it gets retaken by nature. What about this less than 20%? We were, we were very generous and uh, charitable with our numbers here. It may not be 20%. It may not be 10%. That's why we said less than, right? Because less than 20%, less than 10% is also less than 20%, right? So we're not being dishonest. We're just trying to be charitable. We don't want to be too alarmist here. But the less than 20% of the population that return to nature, give themselves back to nature, they fall into devolution. all the people who are, you know, they're falling into the uh, so-called spirituality of psychedelics and they're falling into, you know, the, 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 the crystals and the dream catchers and the, you know, and the piercings and the tattoos and the, the dubstep music and the boom, 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 right? Hypnotic beat thing and, and and uh what do they call it ecstatic dance and this whole like hypnotic thing like trance right because there's all like trance music and all this other kinds of stuff that's designed to get people into this sort of hedonistic trance state but it's a state of hypnosis but they believe that it's a transcendent spiritual experience all of that falls into this devolutionary arc Because, remember, um, the planet needs human beings on it. It needs hominids. We are essential to the planet's survival. We are an aspect of the planet's body. And mechanical nature needs to have hominids. It doesn't need 7 billion of us or 9 billion of us. It just needs hominids to 
spill their sexual energy and occasionally spill blood and spill one another's blood if necessary. If they forget to actively channel their prana back down into the earth. We've mentioned this before. Gurdjieff writes about this extensively. But if you comprehend, as we were discussed at the beginning, how all the energy of the planet is solar energy, but the planet cannot absorb that energy as pure solar energy. So it has plants that absorb the solar light and create carbon and create fruits and leaves and bark and so on. And then animals eat those plants and they they transform that solar energy uh, from plant matter into animal matter, into blood mostly. That's where the prana is in animals. And that energy then gets eaten by hominids, by human beings, by humanity. And we transform the animal prana into human prana because we bring our astral bodies and our mental bodies into the equation. So we bring a level of uh, psychic energy. We transform that meat that we eat into higher, more subtle levels of energy. And that's the energy of the, uh, the, fifth, the fifth dimension. And the planet needs that energy, requires that energy. So we are supposed to uh, direct that energy back down into the planet. And that's one of the reasons why the Essenes never cut their hair is because that energy does flow, as we were describing before, that creates that circuit between us and the planet. The long hair and the long beards assist that process because the prana flows down through the hair. But we can also channel the prana down through our feet. So when we do pranayama, that's something that we do. And if you practice pranayama, you know that you can feel the energy in your legs and in your feet when you practice pranayama. Because as you circulate the prana and you circulate it back into your heart, it flows down to all parts of your body and it flows down into the earth. If you do prana barefoot on the ground, you especially can feel this. But in the absence of doing these practices, you're left with just hominids. And so, but you need their prana. And prana exists in two places, in the sexual force and in the blood. So that's why you have in all indigenous cultures all over the world, uh, obviously you have typical animal procreation. That's obvious. And the second thing you have is tribal warfare, but you also have sacrifices, sometimes human sacrifices. Sometimes you have cannibalism, but uh, blood and, and you have the rise of all sorts of blood magic and voodoo and all sorts of uh, practices that relate to the blood. 
and blood being spilled and blood, blood being spilled in sacrificial ways, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But then you, and then you have the tribal warfare and everything else. So the planet will will cause just enough of humanity to fall into devolution as it requires in order to maintain itself and maintain its ecosystems on that fourth dimensional energetic level. Um, you see, new agers like to talk about earthing and they like to talk about walking barefoot on the earth and drawing energy up from the earth. You never hear them, ever will you hear them talking about sending energy back into the earth. But the planet doesn't need them to. It has other ways to get that energy. And those ways are savage and primal. And that's why you have remnants of past humanities and past civilizations all devolving and degenerating into savage, primal, indigenous cultures. Because they have to perform their duty to the, to their, to the planet one way or another. And if they don't perform it consciously... Well, they'll perform it subconsciously, and the and mechanical nature sees to that, and the the egos make that happen. But this duality of these two pillars, right? These divide and conquer strategy of the technocratic, villainous, uh, corporate, materialistic, capitalist empire-driven exploitation of nature thing on the one hand. And then you have the nature worship, nature idolatry, uh, you know, communing with nature, the mother goddess nature, everything is, nature is our God, nature is who we worship. We come from nature, we go back to nature, right? On the other hand, these are, these are the two sides in Avatar. And they're so clearly delineated. They're so clearly demarked as the good guy and the bad guy. One's the good guy, one's the bad guy. And one is clearly held as superior to the other. And those who become completely enamored and completely taken with Avatar and Pandora, they're the ones who are most susceptible to falling into this twisted vision B. Now, you'll notice that there's a middle way here. There's a middle way. And Avatar doesn't address that middle way. And so neither will we right now. But the, the narrow way of alchemy and ego death, that's for the very, very, very few. Very few. Ask yourself honestly, of the people in either of these two camps, who is willing to sacrifice lust? Who's willing, who's even ready to receive that level of knowledge, that level of teaching? 
But Avatar is the filmatic expression of how humanity, of the fate of humanity, the vast majority of humanity, how it's going to go. And ironically, it is not, it's not doing so in an ironic way. It's doing so picking a side and saying, and, and using and cherry picking from the supernal worlds, from Eden and everybody's deep, unconscious um, longing to return to Eden. Because we all have that within us as human beings. This is a fallen humanity. We all know deep down that we should be in the fourth dimension, that we should be communing with nature, that we should be having conversations with animals and being able to commune with their, their spirits. But not in the way in which indigenous cultures in, uh, uh, do. or attempt to do, and not in the way it's done in Avatar, but you see, that's the problem with Avatar. It's picking sides in this equation and it's conflating and confusing this middle path with this path of nature idolatry. And it conflates and confuses the path of nature, the path of nature idolatry with the new golden age. Because there is a true, actual golden age that awaits the next humanity on this planet. But these, these um, savages... These primal animal, intellectual animals who abandon civilization and abandon everything and go back into nature idolatry and nature worship and, <clears throat> and, uh, and taking their substances and psychedelics and everything else, they're, they're, they're done. They're, they're, they're going to be lost. They're, the golden age is not going to be for them. By the time the new golden age emerges, they will have already lost multiple generations. They will already have been reabsorbed energetically by mechanical nature. They will be too far gone. Any attempt to civilize these people will go about as well as any and every attempt to civilize indigenous people around the world by the colonialists. It was a disaster for the most part. Mostly, of course, because the colonialists had uh, the wrong... Well, some of them had good intentions, but they mostly went about it the wrong way. The most successful... And really the only way it can be done is how it was done in South America. 
where the Spanish uh, intermixed with the remnants of the Aztecs and the Mayans. And they gave birth, oh, the, not just the Spanish, but the Portuguese, pardon us. We should, we should make that clear. The Spanish and the Portuguese, they, they took uh, natives, native women, uh, as their brides. And they, they had children who were, they weren't native, but they weren't European either. They were something new. And what they were, were Argentinian, Portuguese, or sorry, Brazilian, and Mexican. Because these are the, and to one degree or another, the uh, the Latin type, the Latin subrace of the Americas, the Central Americas and, the, and South Americans. So the Brazilians to this day speak Portuguese, and the rest of uh, Latin America to mostly speak Spanish. But they are distinct and unique from both the Europeans, the so-called colonials, and the indigenous peoples who by and large maintain their isolationism and whether it's in the uh the the rainforest or high in the mountains like in guatemala where we were at lake atitlan above the villages around the lake were the mayans and they were by and large four feet tall and they spoke their own language they spoke mayan and they were still living an isolationist uh, existence. And you could just feel, you could, the energy of them, you could feel it. They're devolving. They're, they're just the way they were and the way they interacted with you. They were not, they, you could feel it. They were just, it's, it's so difficult to put into words. But how, for example, they will just, they will just come up to you and just ask for money. They would just beg. They would just automatically beg. And they would assume and expect to receive something. And they just take things, just steal. Like to them, it's to them, there's no distinction between civilization and and nature, right? So if they see an avocado in a tree, to them, it's just I go and it take that avocado out of the tree, right? If they see something they want on a windowsill in someone's backyard, they just go and take it off the windowsill from the backyard in the same way that they would take the avocado from the tree. They can't differentiate between the two. And it's terrible to say, it's very politically incorrect to say, but in many ways, it's exactly the same as uh, any other primate. Whether you, you go anywhere in the world, like where they have monkeys and other primates that, that intermix with, uh, with humanity, those monkeys and primates, they just, they just take things. They don't care. They don't, it doesn't register to them that there's something called ownership or there's something called theft. They're no longer 
they are no longer plugged into or connected to that aspect of ethics or morality. It just doesn't, it just doesn't apply to them anymore. They're, they're simply hominids now. And they behave that way. They act that way. They live that way. And they have to live in isolation from human beings because they can't, they cannot, um, they cannot interrelate. And the humans can't have them doing that. They, you know, you can't just have people coming and taking things, you know, willy-nilly. But this is where the reality comes into play that many of the so-called great apes around the world are degenerated humans. Like many of the so-called hominids that they dig up, that the uh, historians, the archaeologists dig up, and they call it, this is, this is this kind of hominid, and that's that kind of hominid, and Australopithecus this, and Australopithecus that. What they're looking at are degenerated human beings, devolved human beings from various different high civilizations who, who went extinct. The reason why the archaeologists can't process it that way, they can't conceive of that, is because they don't have any concept of devolution. They only understand evolution. And they think that everything only goes in one direction. That's not the case. It's not the case. And all you need to do is go to Guatemala and go to Lake Atitlan and meet some Mayans, real Mayans, actual Mayans. And you see a glimpse into the future of this humanity, of this civilization. And those who do not eliminate their egos, those who do not break free of the bonds of mechanical nature, what, what our children's 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 children are going to be like when they have no moral compass, when they have no ethics, when they're basically just animals. They might still have speech. They might still have arts and crafts. The Mayans can still do beautiful things. They're very handy. They're very, they're very crafty. They haven't lost their dexterity. They haven't lost, you know, all their physical faculties. And they can hunt and they can weave and they can build. And they're strong. Man, are they strong. These little four feet tall people can haul unbelievable amounts up the mountain using their, their head and their neck. They're incredibly strong. But yeah, look at a chimpanzee. You know, a chimpanzee can rip a human being apart limb from limb. It doesn't matter that the chimpanzee is only this big. A chimpanzee is so strong, he can tear the arms off of a human being and tear them apart limb from limb. No strong man can do that. The strongest human being can't do that. But a chimpanzee can. And we tell you from our, from our testimony that we saw with our own eyes, little four-foot-tall Mayan women who I bet you they could enter a strongman competition in Ireland and kick everybody's ass. They are so strong. How? Why? It's a mystery. And yet it's not, because somehow chimpanzees are half the size of these Mayan women and, and four times as strong as that. 
So it's not a mystery. It's just something about physiology and something about the animal kingdom and something about devolving humans as they become more and more and more animal-like and less and less and less human, they become stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger physically. And maybe it has something to do with the rebalancing of energies, right? As they become less and less intellectual and less and less emotional, less and less spiritual, that energy has to go somewhere. So it has to manifest somehow. And maybe it manifests as physical strength. If you think of, well, because everything must, everything must balance, right? So if you have this base energy, but you have it on a devolving arc, and the physical size is getting smaller, but the energy is still there, the prana is still there, it has to express itself somehow. So it's like super concentrating something, right? It's like, it's like, it's like an espresso. You, you drink an espresso and you get a huge jolt of caffeine and it's so strong, right? Well, you take that espresso and you, that same amount of coffee, but you make it into an Americano or a latte. And now you don't have the same impact, right? You don't have the same impact of the caffeine and you certainly don't have the same impact of the taste. It's the same type of thing, right? It's called super concentrating. And something like that is taking place with human beings who are devolving and becoming more primal, more savage, more animal in their expression. They become stronger and stronger. And perhaps to one degree or another, we are witnessing that even today because there is an obsession with bodybuilding. There is an obsession with body sculpting. There is an obsession all over the world with being stronger and faster and more agile and more this and more that. Physical strength, physical ability, physical dexterity, physical agility. Look at the extreme this and extreme that. And people climbing mountains and people doing all these things. And it's like, and it's, it's popularized. These are the things that, and the people go to their 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 everyday day-to-day dead-end jobs that gives them no satisfaction no no anything it just gives them money and then that money is what gives them the wherewithal to be able to fly o- over the world to to go climb mountains or or ski down mountains or mountain bike do extreme mountain biking or or extreme diving or whatever it is that they do but all these physical visceral activities are are you know, can be a sign of people who are wanting more and more and more to have sensory, visceral, physical experiences and are more and more identified with their physical self, with that primal animal instinct to be strong or to be fast or to conquer this or to conquer that or to be the alpha male or the alpha female or whatever it is, whatever it is. But Avatar is feeding this and feeding off of this. It's, it's, a, it's a symbiotic relationship between Avatar and this aspect of humanity. There is no... We, we, we do not put Avatar in the same uh, basket as Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or The Matrix 
Avatar is not waking anybody up. It's not. It's only going, Avatar only puts people to sleep. Because waking up to the, the environmental devastation by creating a, an attachment to physical nature and to mechanical nature is not waking up. It's strengthening and deepening our, our collective identification with mechanical nature with the false self, with the character in the game world. And that's why Pandora is so fantastic a place that people want to return to. They want to keep going back to. Because it's, it is like, and it is all digital, but it's digital that's so hyper-realistic. So it's like the ultimate video game. It's the ultimate fantasy. And again, it's, it's taking these aspects, cherry-picking aspects of divine conscious beings and impregnating the physical mechanical nature with those aspects saying, Hey, you can have your cake and eat it too, which really, which is what the first avatar film was all about. When it really comes down to it, you can have your cake and eat it too. A weak, paralyzed human being, no problem. You can exist. You can, you can exist as a Navi. And we're going we're gonna to do the plot contrivances that allow you to do that, to download your consciousness permanently and become a Navi permanently. It's an important film to understand. It's important to recognize what's going on, where it's coming from, what it's supporting, what it's promoting, and how it is completely, totally, and utterly focused at the masses. This is, this is pop culture par excellence. This is, not, this is not science fiction. Avatar is not science fiction. Because any, anyone who's even remotely interested in science fiction can poke a million holes in the story, in the plot, in the, in the so-called science of Avatar. It's, it's not science fiction. It's a fantasy thrill ride. It's, a, it's like Gravity was a few years ago. It's like an amusement park ride. But it's drawing on very strong, deep longings within the human psyche and manipulating those to end up with a, a result, which again is, is related directly to the Kali Yuga, directly to 
the destruction and the devolu and devolution of humanity. So it's a cultural milestone. It's a cultural landmark. But all milestones and all landmarks demark something. They point at something. And this is what Avatar is pointing to. Munaz says they are losing their souls to dark entity distractions. Um, and uh, Azazel says, nah, man, it is hot as hell down there. <laughs> uh, well, that's why, you know, one of the things about the way of water is James Cameron very cleverly uses water as an analog for God, for spirit. Because in the movie, they say, <clears throat> when you're in the water, look around, you're, you're surrounded by water. The water is all around you, but the water is also within you. And you were born in water. You, you came from water. You were born from water. Because we all were born from the womb. Yes? And the womb is filled with the, uh, the, the ambionic fluid, right? We, we, we were essentially born underwater in our mother's womb. And we are, what, 80%, 90% water? And, and when we die, it's not ashes to ashes, dust to dust. It's no, no, it's, it's, we're 80% water. So when we die, it's most of us evaporates. What's left is very, very small percentage of us. What's left to, to, to dry out and become ash. And why it takes freaking piles and piles and piles of wood to be able to burn one person at the stake because we're 80, 90% water. So this we came from water we were born from water the water is all around us and the water is in us and the water flows through us this is all an analogy for spirit this is all an analogy for for divinity and the way it's presented to to an un, to the uninitiated to someone who doesn't have the eyes and the ears to hear the eyes to see and the ears to hear they're going to be inundated with that in this fantasy Pandora dreamscape. And it's going to resonate with them. Say, yeah, that's true. That's true. Why? Because deep down, he's not talking about water. He's talking about God. He's talking about spirit. So he's conflating the two by using water as an analogy because water is very much connected to mechanical nature and our physical self. But he's able to word it in such a way where he's not lying. He's telling the truth about water of our physical self, but he's using the language of spirit. Both of those things are true. Our physical body is water, came from water, will return to water. And our metaphysical bodies, our spirit, 
came from spirit will return to spirit. But you see, with Avatar and Pandora, James Cameron can just talk water. It's all one thing, don't you know? It's just one thing. And that one thing is nature. Mechanical nature. That's where we come from. That's where we're going through. You see how he's taking, and water is blue, right? Just like the blue Navi. He's taking the blue, the higher frequency of the metaphysical reality of the esoteric worlds. And he's taking them and he's, he's, he's pulling them down. He's dragging them down. And he's impregnating physical reality with that blueness. And he's saying, you can achieve spirituality. You can achieve immortality. You can achieve divinity through this physical world, this physical realm. This is what's magical. This is what's spiritual. This is what God is. This is Ewa, the Divine Mother, the Great Mother. And this is what all indigenous people believe. This is the trap they're all in. He, James Cameron isn't inventing anything here. He's just taking and begging and borrowing and stealing from indigenous spirituality from all over the world. And then he's taking it and creating a hyper-reality around it called Pandora. Called and he calls it Avatar. A word that was also co-opted by the video game industry to talk about your character in a role-playing game or in a massively multi multiplayer online game, an MMO. That's your avatar. It's your character, yes, but it's your avatar. And that word avatar means like a uh, great soul it's it's avatar is reserved for people like jesus and moses and 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 muhammad and, and buddha they have avatars the only video game that ever used the term avatar correctly was the video game series ultima they had a well, ultima 4 was called the quest of the avatar we've talked about that video game in the past it's the only video game in history ever to use the term correctly and in honor and respect of its true spiritual meaning as one who is a physical embodiment of the eternal values of divinity and in that and that you had to become the avatar in that game you had to go and you had to find the runes learn the mantras, discover the shrines of the eight great virtues, and you had to go and pray the mantra and meditate and pray with the mantra at the shrines, but you couldn't enter if you didn't have the appropriate rune. And you'd sat there on the keyboard typing this mantra and typing this mantra and typing this mantra over and over and over again until you received one-eighth of the Ankh. The Ankh, of course, is the sign of the Avatar. And the whole video game, the whole story, was that the king of uh, Britannia, which is the, the, the world, Lord British, uh, he, he's, he calls you forth to uh, Britannia. He summons you because Britannia has fallen into darkness 
and and degeneration and the people need a hero the people need a true hero to look up to someone to inspire them with virtue and inspire them with goodness someone who's going to bring the light and shine the light back onto uh, britannia and uh, and lord british says i'm too old to undertake this task but you i've summoned you to do this task to be my hero and to do this in my stead so it's the innermost being it's god the father it's the king who calls upon his hero to go out into the world and find the runes and learn the mantras and discover the shrines and pray at the shrines and then by the way there's also eight deadly it's eight deadly sins to counterbalance the eight great virtues and you must find each of these dungeons the dungeon destard the dungeons of despise and so on and you have to go and you have to clear out those dungeons of all of the monsters and destroy the, and, and eliminate the demons and the denizens and you have to go into the very underworld of britannia and liberate britannia liberate the world from all the demons and all the darkness which haunts it so that's where brought in the uh, the video game aspect of it with the combat and the role-playing game and etc 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 it's the only game like it ever to exist ever to be made but after ultima 4 the in all of the all of the ultima games from ultima 4 all the way to ultima 7 were all about the ongoing tales of the avatar it's the only video game series ever to use the word avatar correctly um moon says uh yes very hot down there that is why they need to pump on our energy dark entities do not use their heart only their mind and ego they cannot receive life force energy they can only feed themselves with lower energies this is why they want to lower our energies through mind control and many other attacks visible and invisible uh rounds but their time is finished we have entered the age of aquarius Many illusions are coming to the light and more and more souls are awakening to the truth. Um, the dark entities are inside of us. They're not outside of us. And all those people who think that they're awakening to the truth by awakening to dark evil forces outside of us enslaving humanity etc etc they're all awakening all right but they're awakening negatively because they're not working on themselves they're not eliminating their egos they're not practicing white tantra they don't <clears throat> they the more the more you believe in the mass global awakening the more you will be lost because there is no mass global awakening awakening happens on an individual basis there's lots of energy there to promote and help and assist those who are doing the work. But if you're not doing the work, no one and nothing can erase your karma. No one and nothing can awaken you. And certainly no one and nothing can awaken you positively. But you can awaken negatively or you can awaken as a Hasna Musan. And that's what the vast majority of so-called spiritual people are awakening as. They're simultaneously awakening as an angel and a demon. But unfortunately, the demon is stronger in them because they're continuing fornication and many of them are practicing black magic. 
They're manifesting their desires. They're manifesting this. They're manifesting that. That's all black magic. They're going against their own karma. They're going against the lords of karma. They're trying to win the video game by gaming the system. But that's not how you win this game. You can't win, you can't win the game by cheating. You know what happens to cheaters, right? So um, what you're describing is just more of the cleverness, more of the, uh, the way in which the Black Lodge, which was not outside of us, how the Black Lodge does their work, which is to twist, tempt, and corrupt and make fall all that is good and pure and of the light. That's what they're designed to do. Look, if awakening and self-realization was easy, then everybody would be doing it. And there would be awakened Buddhas on every street corner. But that's not the case. It's just not the case. The reason why people are so confused is because most people have never even met someone who was awake. How could they know that they were awake? What that even means? What that's even like? Have you ever met a saint? A bona fide saint. Because if you haven't, then you've never met someone who's awake. To be awake means to be a Buddha. You think that people awakening to, to the, uh, uh, the Covidiacy and Fauci and the World Economic Forum and the other conspiracy theorists... You think they're Buddhas because they know about conspiracy theory? You got another thing coming. That's not what it means to be awake. To be, to be awake means that you've created your solar causal body in the sixth dimension. That's what it means to be awake. That you're a Buddha. And that's just awake. That doesn't mean you're a master. Now, there's lots of energies that are promoting and helping us revolutionary energies. Tremendous energies. And as you said, a lot of this is related to Aquarius, which is change. But changing your mind doesn't make you awake. And changing allegiances doesn't make you awake. And changing religions doesn't make you awake. You see? That's like changing your clothes. Changing your clothes doesn't make you naked. Robbing Peter to pay Paul. And Aquarius... That energy is simply promoting for people to change. So that's why you have people who believe one thing one day and then they, they join a different school, a different thing, and then they'll, they'll go to another school and another school and another tradition and they'll pick up another book and they'll read that book and, oh my God, this is it. Now I believe this. And they think they're on their spiritual journey. But they're like a pinball in a pinball machine getting bounced around in between the bumpers. Because awakening is transcending all of that. 
All of it. No school, no community, no religion, no, no beliefs. But knowing, knowing. Having direct conscious experience of reality, of divinity, of yourself, of and your self's self, the being of beings. <clears throat> There's very few people doing that. Very few. They think because they can awaken in the astral plane that their work is done. They've achieved 5D ascension. They have no idea what they're talking about. They have no idea what ascension means and what it applies to. And if they keep going along the track that they're going on, they're going to end up where it's very hot down there. Because it's all a trap, you see. It's all a trap. Oh, and this was the last thing that we wanted to mention about Avatar and Pandora and this whole thing about the trap. You know, Eden's a trap. The fifth dimension is a trap. And if you know people who travel in the fifth dimension and they think that they're they're already their work is done because they can they can awaken in the astral plane and travel in the astral plane. They've achieved 5D ascension. Well, guess what? They're in a trap. They're in a trap. Nirvana is a trap. Anything and everything, every single step along the way, every level that you achieve, there's a trap waiting there for you, waiting to keep you there. Because that is the nature of the journey. That is the nature of self-knowledge, of knowing ourselves and letting go. It's constantly, constantly this, this process of death. We must die at each level. And each level that we get to, it's like, because we were saying in the alm of life, it's a spiral. So every time you get to the next up uh, higher level, you have to go even deeper into even darker places and fight the demons there and eliminate the demons there so you can rise to the next highest level. It's not easy. It's not easy. And it's not romantic. And it's not, you know, this beautiful, mystical, rainbow-colored, uh, psychedelic spectacle that people experience when they take mushrooms or whatever. It's not that. It's not. It's not that. It's boring. It's mundane. It's hard work. It's like... Any musician or any artisan, any master of anything will tell you. They might do a concert once a year and get applause and get dressed up in a tuxedo or whatever and, you know, have flowers thrown onto the stage and, you know, well, that's a wonderful, beautiful, magical evening. But the other 364 days of the year, it's hard work. It's practice. It's drilling the, 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 the music over and over and over and over again. It's making many, many, many mistakes. And all of us who have ever done anything worth anything will testify to this. That the things that are valuable in your life are not the things that come easily or quickly or without effort or magically that's that's not 
how this process goes. But the ego doesn't want to hear that. The ego wants quick, easy. It wants silver bullets. It wants magic pills. It wants to hear what it wants to hear. And so it'll tell itself that. It'll tell us that. And if it sees something like Avatar, it'll say, oh, yeah, that's the stuff. That's it. That's the magic. That's the beauty. That's the wonder. That's the... That's what spirituality is all about. And that's what the war is right now. War against technology, the war against exploitation, the war for the environment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so you get law, all these people, millions and millions and millions and millions of people dedicated to the religion of woke, to the Green New Deal, because that's what they're going to be selling very soon, the Green New Deal, right? And that's what Tesla is all tangled up in, right? The, the whole electrification of the automobile industry and everything else. It's all about the Green New Deal and Greta Thunberg and all of that stuff. Avatar is connected to all of that. To all of that. All of that Green New Deal stuff, the environmentalism and everything, all of that is wrapped up in this uh, in this strategy that we showed you. Mm. It's one of those, it's one of the two uh, pillars of the divide and conquer strategy of the Kali Yuga, of how mechanical nature is, is, is going to own this humanity. We feel like there might be some points that we forgot about the film. So we're going to open it up to questions or comments. If you'd like to uh, ask something or could you, or have, have you seen the film? Have you, do you have your own thoughts that you'd like to share? We'd be eager to, um, to hear them. Um, ask away. And perhaps uh, one of the things that, uh, we forgot to mention will will pop into our our mind here we by no means would we say don't go see the film or don't recommend the film or something um you know we we wouldn't go so far as to say that um it's an enjoyable movie and it has it has a, a messages of family values and traditional values. Um, so, and it's a thoroughly entertaining and enjoyable movie. And it is wondrous to see on screen. I mean, again, give credit where credit is due. It's a technological wonder. It really is. It really is. Um, and it's not woke by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it's just you just be aware of how it's manipulating you in ever so subtle and some not so subtle ways. Right? Just, just, just be aware of that. And if you're aware of that going in, then, uh, you know, you should be fine. You, you'll be able to enjoy it. And, um, yeah. So 
Oh, Zazel says, had no idea. <laughs> I no, had no clue about the second release of it. Uh, might check it out. Yeah, so it it came out on uh, this Friday or this Thursday. He says, um, he says, but the Fate series is on higher priority currently. What is the Fate series? We are uh, we are unfamiliar with this uh, fate series, so you'll have to uh, you'll have to uh, educate us on that. Incidentally, speaking of uh, movies, um, we saw a trailer for um, Oppenheimer. Um, oh, here we go. As Azil says, uh, the Fate series is an animated series that touches on the Holy Grail War. So the series is nonlinear, which makes sense. Is that on Netflix or where is that? Where, where can one, uh, see this, uh, Holy Grail War, uh, series? Anyway, so Nick, um, uh, Christopher Nolan uh, is making a movie about Oppenheimer. Now, Oppenheimer, as you may know, is the man who essentially built the nuclear bomb. Uh, he is the one that's quoted uh, as uh, saying, uh, I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. And uh, that, if you see Avatar, you, you might see the trailer for Oppenheimer. Uh, we didn't, because we, we're in Canada. And of course, Canada is just has to be different. So uh, we 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 saw trailers for everything but Oppenheimer. Um, but uh, that should be interesting. Christopher Nolan usually is fairly faithful to um, to history, so it'll be interesting to see his take on uh, Oppenheimer. Because of course, the development of nuclear weapons was one of this humanity's greatest catastrophes greatest uh the the ripple effects of those those nuclear explosions reverberated throughout the entire uh um solar system because when you understand that 3d reality is virtual and that everything is energy the splitting of the atom uh reverberates it, those reverberations do not have to travel through physical space when you split an atom you're splitting it on the metaphysical level and what manifests in three dimensions is yes it's profound but it's still ultimately illusory but just as like if you explode something outward it's also going to implode inward for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction so the the force which reverberated through the entire uh, uh, solar system and even to the extent of the galaxy was uh, tremendous. I mean, <clears throat> it's not by accident that it was after and because of all of the nuclear tests that were being done by humanity that the uh, the the extraterrestrials started showing up uh, to keep an eye on this humanity in a serious way, 
because this humanity was on the verge of causing cosmic, catastrophic cosmic damage. Um, and the other humanities uh, uh, in the uh, galaxy couldn't, couldn't let that stand. It's one thing for us to destroy each other and destroy ourselves, but it's another thing entirely for us to start going out and affecting uh, other planets and other humanities who have who are in no way, shape, or form as degenerated as we are. Uh, Benjamin says, although I haven't seen the movie yet, it appears to be propaganda for the green agenda. Thank you for elaborating on this topic as it helps us to avoid some subtle influence. Is the entertainment industry going to be used for the divide and conquer scheme in this Kali Yuga? I noticed that a lot of new movies are predictive programming. Um, keep in mind that the answer is the short answer is yes. And keep in mind that for every avatar, there are dozens of other movies and video games and properties that are glorifying the technocracy, right? So we have movies like Her. I don't know if you remember that film with uh, Joaquin Phoenix and um, Scarlett Johansson. And Scarlett Johansson plays an operating system. And um, he buys this device. It's essentially like, like a phone, but it has an operating system that's an AI. And the AI operating system is voiced by Scarlett Johansson. So essentially, Siri or Alexa with a personality and Scarlett Johansson's voice. And Joaquin Phoenix falls in love with this operating system. Now that is 100% transhumanist propaganda. Okay? All movies that personify and give human attributes to robots is transhumanist propaganda. And then you have cyborgs and all this, you know, like, so for every avatar or every uh, fern gully or every uh, movie that's trying to push the <clears throat> nature idolatry, nature worship, whatever, the Green New Deal agenda, there's other movies on the other side that are pushing. And these agendas, okay, are not conscious for the, by and large, are not conscious that the people who believe in the Green New Deal really do believe in it. They're not part of any conspiracy. Greta Thunberg really does believe what she's saying. She's been programmed and conditioned to believe that and say that, but she really does believe it. There are only very, 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 very few people at the very top who are in the among the elite who are the ones you never see or hear of for the most part, the demonic ones, the really the ones who are really awakened demons who know what the true agenda is of divide and conquer and the dismantling and the destruction of this humanity. Because, but their puppets, their useful idiots don't know because they would never go along with it if they did, if they knew what the real agenda was. So, they're only given as much information as they need in order to carry out the agenda. So if you believe, if you're a, if you're a billionaire and you believe that, that pushing transhumanism 
is going to help you live forever because it's going to let you download your consciousness into a computer or into a robot and then you're going to be able to live forever or and then eventually transfer that consciousness into a clone of yourself made from your own DNA <clears throat> right you're going along with all of that for purely selfish reasons you're purely self uh, uh, preservation right there's no bigger agenda it's only about you right just so happens that you pursuing that self-preservation happens to be in line with the Black Lodge's overall agenda, which is destroying humanity, yourself included. You have to try to look at this from the point of view of uh, pure evil. It's, but there's absolutely zero regard whatsoever for things like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and any of this. Like, So remember we were telling you about the, um, the degenerated Mayan and how like a monkey, they will take something out of your kitchen with the same impetus that they pluck an avocado from the tree. Right? There's there is there is absolutely nothing because they're there that monkey or that devolving human is completely governed by the laws of mechanical nature and egos work for mechanical nature. So I'm hungry, I want the avocado. There's the avocado on the tree. I take the avocado from the tree. It's perfect. And in nature, this is how nature works, right? No animal stops to say, hmm, I wonder if this tree belongs to some other monkey. No. And just like, you know, monkeys, the monkeys walking around, whatever, and he sees, he looks in a, a window and he says, ooh, there's a bowl of avocados in, in that place. I'm going to sneak in and grab me an avocado, right? The monkey does the monkey has no way of differentiating those two things because they're completely mechanical. So that's actually a better way to think of it. Not that not in terms of pure evil. Think of it in terms of pure coldness. Zero empathy, zero consideration for the others, for other. It's like the Terminator, right? The Terminator has a program. I have to kill John Connor. That's my program. Right? And Kyle Reese says, he will stop at nothing. He will never stop. Do you understand? Oh, actually, no. It's uh, in the first movie. He has to kill Sarah Connor, not John Connor, Sarah Connor. And Kyle Reese says to Sarah, you have to understand, it's a machine. It's a robot. It's been programmed to terminate you. It will never stop. It can't be reasoned with. It can't be bought. It can't be threatened it's a machine the black lodge is a machine and that machine is in destroy humanity mode got to tear humanity down have to destroy humanity now it's useful idiots it's useful pawns are actually acting that out as we speak. And we've talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about our, in our talk about Babylon 5th. 
and the fall of the the fall of the Tower of Babel that's happening right here and right now. The elite themselves are going to demolish it. Why? Because the building is condemned and you never wait for a condemned building to collapse. You always do a controlled demolition. Why? Because you're terrified. You're governed by fear. Fear controls your very existence. And fear is the primal self-preservation instinct. So you want to be in control. You want to make sure that you maintain control and that you do a controlled demolition and you bring everything down in a way where you're in control. Meanwhile, that desire to be in control, that it's all 100% fear, that fear, that self-preservation instinct, that's exactly what motivates the monkey to take the avocado from the tree or sneak into the kitchen and take the avocado from the kitchen. Self-preservation instinct. It's just a program. It's just an algorithm. It's not to be taken personally. It's not to be taken personally. They don't care about us. One way or another, they don't care. It's not in their programming. They only know what they know. Uh, so yes, yeah, so Azazel answered me and said it's on Netflix. And Benjamin said that he likes the Fate series too. We'll have to check it out. Azazel says, yeah, it's really good. Um, and Benjamin says here, like before the pandemic, there were lots of predictive programming like Contagion and people who watched it got scared the most uh, when uh, when COVID appears. Yeah. Moon said um, that something was absolutely true. Benjamin also says that's why the elites are represented as reptilians <laughs> because they're cold-blooded and have no regard for humanity. Um, not only that, it's because if you encounter a demon... Uh, in the infernal world, in the internal worlds, uh, it's very easy to uh, mistake them for reptilian. Um, and Moon says the Matrix is all mind programming and manipulations. They want to make us transhuman to destroy our emotions and better control us. Uh, well, that's that's certainly part of it. That's certainly part of it. But really, ultimately. Um, it's really questionable how much of that is going to be allowed to, uh, to, to, to take place. We'll, we'll have to see how things unfold, but certainly the next, the next decade is, um, <clears throat> the next decade is going to reveal much along these lines, but certainly, but the matrix that mind programming happens from within, for the most part. I mean, it's our own egos, it's our own. The, the Black Lodge is inside of us. Never forget that. Never forget that. And what what's what's around us is a projection of what's inside of us. That's always important to remember. So this um, this transhumanist stuff is simply the mechanicity of our own egos wanting to express themselves in a technological way, in a way that they've never been able to express themselves before. Awakened Reflection says, isn't destruction of humanity the best solution for its current depravity and the dawn of the new golden age? Yes. Yes. 
At no point did you hear us say that this was a bad thing. At no point did you say, did you hear us suggest that it was a bad thing or that it was something to be avoided. So the Black Lodge has a very important role to play. Yes, yes, it does. It works for mechanical nature. And nature loaned humanity all that it loaned humanity. And humanity exploited nature, right? Raped nature to create the so-called civilization that we have. And now it's time for nature to take it back, to call in the loan. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. This civilization came out of the earth, and guess what? It has to go back into the earth. And the Black Lodge works for mechanical nature. It has to. It, it, this, this, is, this is inevitable and unavoidable. But, and the way it does it is in the way that we describe, divide and conquer. But in between those two steps, ah, okay. And, she, and you say, I, I remember when you said we shouldn't run from suffering, so we're here to embrace and flow with it, accept our fate. Okay. Now, here's the thing, though. Humanity is going. The civilization is going. Okay? But when and how exactly we don't know and we can't say. And in addition, but what we can say, what we do know, is that every time this happens, okay, there needs to be a harvest, an opportunity for monads to get off the wheel of suffering, right? So that you shouldn't run from suffering, no. You should embrace and flow with it, accept it, but learn from it, right? Suffering for the sake of suffering is stupid, right? Suffering for the sake of suffering is pointless. Suffering for the sake of knowledge, for the sake of wisdom, for the sake of learning from our past mistakes, because the only reason why we suffer is because the causes of our suffering, we created those causes. We created those causes through our past mistakes. It's called karma. Egos are the manifestation of our karma. So, it's not about avoiding suffering. It's about using suffering as an opportunity to grow, to evolve. And the Kali Yuga, the destruction of a humanity, all the energies that are coming that are, that are helping to facilitate that and to catalyze that transition, like any transition, it's our opportunity to awaken and let go and accept that it's time to let go and not be not be attached not be attached to the civilization not be attached to humanity not be attached to the suffering of others but on the contrary recognize and empathize 
with the suffering of others and say, what can I do to help them? What do I need to do to help myself? What do I need to do to overcome the causes of suffering inside of me? Yes, of course, that's job one. But then by me doing that, if I awaken, if I learn from if I learn my lessons and if I learn how to overcome the causes of suffering inside of me, how can I help others to overcome the causes of suffering inside of them? And what can I do to help this humanity face their fate? Because right now, we know that humanity is not prepared for what's coming. Look at how humanity was uh, manipulated into this panic mode with the, uh, with the COVIDocracy, right? The COVIDiacy. Fear is the pandemic. <clears throat> this entire humanity allowed themselves to be, to be completely uh, overcome by fear and panic and paranoia. So just, just, just imagine the suffering they're going to endure when the final destruction comes. What can we do to help mitigate that? What can we do to help people overcome their fear, to recognize it as such a powerful source of suffering inside of them? Anxiety, depression, stress, these are, these are an epidemic proportions. But it's all fear. So what can we do to help and assist and aid? And that's why the final cataclysm is sort of being held back to give this humanity and to give those of us who can more time and to give this humanity more time so more monads can awaken, more individuals can become conscious and recognize the things that we're talking about here and, and liberate themselves from the hypnosis and the ignorance. And, and learn how to overcome the causes of suffering so they can learn to accept their fate and, and finally um, overcome and get off the wheel of suffering, right? Get off the wheel of samsara and this constant cycle of birth and death and birth and death and birth and death and suffering. So... So suffering has a purpose, it has a meaning, but it it's not, we don't want to become nihilistic and say, well, I just have to accept my suffering and then my work is done. Right? It's like the mountain is there to be conquered. Right? So the mountain is, it's not easy climbing the mountain. Conquering the mountain is not easy. But it's there to be conquered. And it's, right, it's, it's hard. But if it wasn't hard, it wouldn't be worth it. But it is there to be climbed, right? Suffering is like that. You don't avoid it. You don't admire it from afar. You don't just accept and say, I'm going to live in the shadow of the mountain. Well, then you're going to just live in suffering for no reason. No. I'm going to conquer that mountain. I'm going to conquer my suffering. 
I'm going to face it. I'm going to engage with it. And I'm going to conquer the causes of my suffering because in that process, I'm learning how and why I created those causes in the first place. I'm learning my lessons. I'm growing. I'm becoming wiser. And in that process, you can't go through that process and not end up at the place at the top of the mountain where you go, wow, look at the view. Now, you know what? I have to help others get up here and see what I can see because I'm up here all alone and that's a tragedy. Others need to be able to see what I can see from up here. And this is this is the this is the process. This is why avatars, real avatars, exist. Why people like Jesus and Muhammad and Buddha are born and live their lives of suffering and sacrifice. We call them bodhisattvas, right? In Bud in Buddhism and in Gnosticism. It's because they're on top of that mountain, and it's it's really lonely up there. It's really lonely up there. And they say, you know what? You know what the top of this mountain needs? More souls. More monads. More people to hang, hang with. We need to save more. Not everyone. Not everybody can be saved. Not everybody's going to become a mountain climber. We just have to live with that. We have to accept that. That's just reality. But we don't have to throw our arms in the air and say, oh, it's way too hard to help other people. They don't want to be helped. They, they, you know, they spit in our face. They shoot the messenger. They, they stone us. They burn us at the stake. They crucify us. So what? So what? It's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's like that line from Schindler's List from the Talmud. That Ben Kingsley's character says to Schindler that's that they engrave it on the inside of that ring. It says, He who saves a single soul saves the whole world. It's worth it. It's worth all the suffering and all the indignity and all the disrespect and all the mudslinging and you know, it's worth it. Munazabi said, uh, this is why we are here, so we can change the game, the 144,000 chosen ones. Not everyone will make it because they are still attached to 3D uh, addictions and illusions. It is also very individual since we manifest our own thoughts in reality. Uh, Moon, the 144,000, it's a big number, but it's symbolic. Uh, 144,000 reduces to nine. It's symbolic. It means those who are working in the ninth sphere, those who are working with sexual alchemy, those who are working in white tantra. It's not 144,000 people. Could be much more than that. Could be less than that. We don't know what the final number is going to be, but that's a symbolic number, just so you know. But you're right. At the same time, those are the chosen ones. The chosen ones are the ones who are working in the ninth sphere. Benjamin says, yes, fear is the real pandemic. It keeps, excuse me, it keeps us on low vibration and hypnosis. 
I look forward to reading your book about fear. Yeah, you know, we have to get on with that. Um, just remember, remember uh, the topic of our, uh, of our live stream last week was uh, being in hell. And uh, <laughs> so um, we, uh, we're still, we're still dealing with that. So we'll, we'll have to see what, what's on the docket for, uh, in terms of books and book writing, because we have a lot of material that we have to cover and, uh, and we'll see how that goes. And maybe, maybe you just have to wait till the new year to get started. We'll have to see how that goes. All right. Three hour mark. Anyone have any other questions or comments that you'd like to make or bring up or if not, um, we want to thank you for, uh, uh, Moon says, well, here Moon says, uh, we can only plant seeds and move forward. We can only help those who are willing to help themselves. This is absolutely true. This is absolutely true. And um, it is so true that... Um, We have a little, uh, Moon, we have a little, uh, we put this in the chat, but it's here on screen as well. It's on our blog. We have a little poem that talks about planting seeds uh, or what it means to be a seed, really. And um, All we can do is be a seed and a messenger. And that's what this poem is about. It's called Ratatoskr and the Seed. So we share that with you. Um, it's not short, but it's not super long either. It's a medium length. It's a medium length epic poem. But you're right. All we can do is God helps those who help themselves. Says uh, Moon says thank you for clarifying about the hundred forty four thousand makes a lot of sense. Um, there is it comes right from the Bible. Benjamin will, will back me up on this. Uh, God helps those who help themselves, and that's as you said. We we plant a seed. All we can do is is help those who want to be helped. And those who want to help themselves. <clears throat> you can't, you don't rope up to a climbing partner <clears throat> who expects you to drag them up the mountain. Right? The rope is there for safety. The rope is there to catch them if they, if they fall, if they lose their footing. But it's, it's not there for you to drag people up with you. So if they're going to, if they want to climb the mountain, if they want to reach the top, they have to climb the mountain. And the mountain that they're climbing is not your mountain. And the mountain that you're climbing is not their mountain. It's a metaphysical symbolic mountain, but each of us climbs our own mountain, but we can climb those mountains together. This can only happen in the metaphysical space, right? As logically, this can't happen. In the real world, this can't happen. I can't rope up to you 
If you're climbing Everest and I'm climbing K2, that physically, logically is impossible. But metaphysically, it is more than possible. In fact, it's necessary because we all have a soul family. All those people in your life who are most meaningful to you, they're all part of your soul family. You've worked with them before, you're working with them again. And your spouse, the one who's the one who's most important to us on the journey, the one that we can practice white tantra with, they're the ones that, that we are roped up to most intimately. But they are not climbing our mountain and we are not climbing their mountain. We all have our own mountain to climb. But it's a metaphysical mountain. And because it's a metaphysical mountain, they can overlap and overlay and we can all be together and help each other and to navigate and climb like all of you are here. You all have your own mountains to climb, just as I do. But we're here together learning and helping each other and sharing with one another about what that process is like. And we're here to help catch one another if we lose our footing and we slip and fall. And we're here to help point out to one another where there's a pitfall, where there's a challenge, where there's a trap waiting for us, and also where there's some good climbing, where there's some strong footing, some good handholds. You should check this out. Check this series out. Careful about this over here, but go check that out instead. That's the kind of sharing that goes on when you have a community. We're all climbing our own mountains. We all have our own experience. But if that experience affords us some knowledge, we can share that knowledge with others. As Azil says, if we reach the top, coffee's on me. I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> you just, you just, I will not forget that. You just, uh, you just get ready to uh, pony up the coin there, mister. Because I like my like super large mega double venti uh, caramel macchiatos. So by the time we reach the mountain, one of those will cost what? 250 Bitcoin or something. So just, just know that we're going to hold you to that. <laughs> he's like, he's like, damn. <laughs> okay. Moon says, thank you. Always a pleasure to listen and expand my mind with your great insight. Blessings to all. Thank you, Moon Azabi, for being here and for those kind words. Anyone have anything else to share? If not, uh, we thank you all for being here. Um, and uh, well, we look forward to uh, seeing you next week. And listen, if you do get a chance to see Avatar, Come next week if you want. If anybody's interested, it's you can always join the conversation, and um, and uh, and bring your thoughts, bring your feedback. What do you think that we were off? You know, were, were we off on our uh, on our comments, or was there something something you saw in it that we missed? Because we're pretty sure there's something in there that we missed. Jennifer says, "Thank you. You're welcome as always, Jennifer. It's always wonderful to have you here." And um, thank, thank you, Awakened Reflections, for being here as well and, your, um, and participating in your questions and your insights. Um, all right. All of you, have a wonderful week. Um, now, oh, hang on a second. We're, we're getting on to... Um, okay. Um, we will not be having 
uh, we just we we knew there was something we forgot to mention. We will not be having a live stream on the 25th of December. That's Christmas. Um, we have family uh, responsibilities and obligations, as I'm sure all of you um, have your own obligations and responsibilities as well. So, uh, and then the following Sunday is the first, which is New Year's Day. Um, we think we can, we think we'll be able to do, we'll, we'll do a live stream on the 1st of January, but there will not be a live stream on the 25th. We hope that's good for all of you. I, I don't think there's many of you who's going to come to that anyway. Like for us, North America, it's Sunday afternoon. For you guys, it's in Europe. It's Sunday evening on Christmas Day. Um, I'm just guessing it's probably not a good time for anybody. So um, we will, uh, so so allow us to wish all of you a, uh, a joyful holiday season, a Merry Christmas. Um, and uh, we will post some things on our Facebook uh, related to uh, Christ and the Christmas season. Maybe I'll give you some reading material over the holidays if you so feel so inclined. Um, but um, as we, you know, we have some, uh, Moon says, uh, you know, he says, a beautiful Avatar movie is a representation of us. He says, best wishes for the festive season. And uh, we reiterate that. We will echo that, but also say, may the light of Christ illuminate us. May the light of Christ bless us. And may the light of Christ heal us. All of you, uh, joyful holiday, joyful Christmas to you and your families. And um, we'll see you all in New Year. All right. Uh, Benjamin has shared a YouTube video. And uh, he says, thank you um, to all of you. Moon says, may source be with us still. Uh, Goodbye, everyone. Inverential peace and Merry Christmas. Take care.